You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop in a very special series of episodes. All week long, I will be diving into a ton of movie references in K-pop songs and music videos. Movies that have inspired K-pop stars or are rumored to have inspired them. All things the K-pop cinema connection. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. We're going to talk about one of the movies I have indirectly been referencing again and again and again because it was just so clearly a source of inspiration for the NCT cinematic universe. As I've talked about on episodes of NCT Talk previously, The Matrix meets Inception is basically the shortest way to summarize the whole concept of NCT. We've talked about The Matrix before on that episode, and we'll briefly address it again here. But first, it's about time I talk about Inception. Inception is the super instant classic from 2010. It's a sci-fi action movie that follows the story of this guy who works with a team of extractors can extract information from people's subconscious minds. Not only can they do that, but they can layer whatever they took from those subconscious minds and create like three layers of dreaming. Dreams within dreams within dreams so that when you wake up, you're still kind of asleep. You don't know which level you're still in. To officially jolt someone out of all layers of the dream, this kick happens. They call it a kick, and they call it riding the kick back to reality. If they die in their dream, in real life, if you die in a dream, you're going to wake up before you actually die, right before something happens that would lead to death in real life. In here, you enter a state of limbo. You just go into this limbo mode, a world of infinite subconscious. Another term to remember, totem. This endlessly spinning top. It's a metric that helps decide if you're in the real world or not. So if you are confused about what level of reality you are in, this spinning top can help you figure that out. Actually, it's been a very smart marketing move to capitalize on that top. It became a part of the promo before the movie came out. It's serving as the loading screen, essentially, before the movie poster came out. You had to complete the computer game Minecrime, which featured that spinning top before gaining access to see the poster. Plus then there was the time in WonderCon where the studio handed out t-shirts with AR codes on them. And the AR codes took you to a set of instructions, like an instruction manual for the totem. So it's been actually very smart marketing too, in addition to just an interesting concept. The story starts with this guy Cobb being asked to do a favor to perform Inception on Robert. Basically, Cobb has kind of a criminal past, but his criminal record can be swiped in exchange for performing this extraction process on Robert, who is this, he's a son of a business rival, so it would help this guy who's asking for the favor. Robert is sedated into a three-layer dream that features him on a plane ride. Super long story short, there are a lot of levels of projection, and they have to deal with projected images. They have to advance to different levels, 
One of them really messes up big, accidentally does the kick too early, so they have to scramble for an on-the-spot new idea for a formula. Messes everything up. They do find a way to make up a new kick on the spot with the help of explosives and a rigged elevator. Eventually, Robert is kicked awake. He finds out the idea planted in his mind at level 3 was a projection of his dad at death's door, telling him, Robert, please, don't end this life, never becoming yourself, basically. Become your own person. I know this is a super condensed version of what happens, but skip to the end and Cobb is debating what level he's on, and he's going to use the totem to figure it out. But then he decides he'd rather not know. He's pretty content right now, and he decides he'd rather not know. So he actually doesn't use the totem to determine what level of reality or dreaming he is in. I know, I would have been dying of curiosity, but he would rather not know. And so, that's it. We don't know. The last line in the script says, quote, The spinning top is still spinning, and we fade out. So read into that what you will. If you are a massive and citizen like me, who has dissected all of the dream chapters, as they're called, you know, bells went off in your head, ding, 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 throughout my description of the movie. Lots of clear parallels here. First of all, keep in mind that the dream layers are different speeds. Some are slower than others. There's not a singular passage of time. There's a similar messed up chronology of everything with NCT's story, because the release order was stage 0, 3, stage 1, 2, 4. And as I've gone on about ad nauseum on episodes of NCT Talk, there's so many ways that NCT's story does incorporate 2D elements, CGI, movies within TV shows, within dreams, within so many stories. So many layers. What's just an act? What's putting on a show? How much are they watching themselves on a TV? How deep are they in this reality or surreality, manufactured reality? The flashbacks, constant nods to some sort of tape rolling. So like maybe this whole thing is just a movie, but it's also a dream within a movie, etc. So many layers here. During the stage three video, Jemin realizes he brought a flute from his dream world into his reality. Or it could be, it wasn't a full kick, it was just a jolting awake out of one layer. So maybe he has the flute and didn't bring it into the real world, but he thinks he did, just because he woke up out of one layer of subconscious. Lots to read into there, as well as the fact, remember, earlier I emphasized the role of a rigged elevator to help them come up with a new kick? Well, that elevator, that time machine, basically, is such a critical key symbol throughout the NCT videos, even teaser posters. And remember also, when one of Robert's dreams put him on a plane, made me think of Johnny in that stage 3 video. He was on a plane reading A Dream Within a Dream by Edgar Allan Poe, which laments the passage of time and questions how much of our existence is truly just a dream. What counts as real? Fast forward to stage 4, and the stage 4 video shows a group of NCT members meeting up in what I would argue is a nod to the state of limbo. They are in limbo when they are literally putting their heads together and just reflecting, assessing what's going on. In that video, they reference being in this sea of unconscious, and they reference that sea of infinite matter, infinite unconscious material in the voiceover for their 2020 group-wide comeback teaser videos, the Resonance monologue, as well as in this stage 4 video. 
So they do seem to embody the kicks, the limbo, the dreamscapes, and the totem. This triangle-shaped symbol, plus remember at the end of the 90s love video, Hei-chan is seen just spinning rapidly in circles like a spinning top. Another parallel I see is there's one point in the movie where they enter level 2 of the dream after driving around level 1. Definitely reminded me of the dream chapter video where Doyoung is in that taxi, that Uber, whatever, listening to the radio, and he sounds like the radio host too. It just feels like he's in a weird, cloned, manufactured environment. The ultimate message of the movie is a key message of NCT's World 2 about trying to make sense of how much of our world is manufactured and what to do with the power to create your own reality, believe what you want to believe, how you define real and the consequences of how you do. Random facts about the movie. It filmed in six different countries. It's credited with really popularizing that brom sound in movie trailers. A huge noise in a trailer meant to kind of disrupt as opposed to lull, I guess. It set some movie trailer precedent. It also involved a lot of manufacturing conditions, just like the movie's about. Working with fake rain, working in what basically looked like a giant hamster wheel. They did actually film real underwater scenes, and actually had to prepare to film those scenes staying underwater for four to five minutes with scuba tanks, but still. You could also find some parallels to the lyrics in Inception by Aetis, like, you are the dream I can never wake up from, and the fact there is a bed as a recurring symbol in their music videos. Again, I talked about the Matrix on NCT Talk, so today I'm just going to give you the super speed version of what I say in that episode, but NCT was clearly inspired by the Matrix as well. First of all, the main character is Neo. The band name is Neo Culture Technology. There's the red pill, blue pill concept, seemed to be nodded to by pills in this wavy video. Neo ends up jumping out of this skyscraper window when the feds are on his case, similar to Taeyeon jumping out the window in regular. They visit this oracle, this prophet who says, I don't think you are the one, Neo. You're not the one tasked with saving the humans. This one is more of a stretch, but I want to throw out the theory anyway. Maybe it's meaningful here and relevant that in Shane by NCT127, they say we are the one, reasserting we are the Neo of our story. There's also this computer code that is a key source of tension. The agents interrogate Morpheus about it. Just made me think of all the sticker era teaser images, this basement lab of sorts, computer lab. In the color of the computer code is neon green, NCT's signature color. Some frequent symbols used include mirrors, the image of reflected things, similar to all the mirror imagery in so many NCT videos. There's a reference to this desert of the real concept, again bringing up this sea of unconscious concept in resonance monologues and in Inception. And then, of course, there's the very summative line from Morpheus, paraphrasing a philosopher, actually, when he says, quote, Have you ever had a dream that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference from the real world and the dream world? Unquote. Let's move on to Black Swan. 
a psychological thriller that I already dedicated a full episode to called BT Study Guides 3 Black Swan, so go to that if you want the full thorough rundown. But the shortest version of what happens possible is that Nina, who has a very toxic, concerning relationship with her mom, who wants her to live out her ballet dreams for her, Nina ends up not getting the role she wants, and she thinks she can work her way up in the ballet world if she does what Thomas wants her to. Thomas is really this creepy guy. He seems to really just exploit these vulnerable dancers because he knows they rely on him for their career elevation. As the story progresses, Nina has these scars form, these injuries, but in some moments it's like those injuries disappeared. And over time it seems like her hallucinations and questions about what is real versus what is all in her head, how much the scars are real or not, all of that just gets more confusing and the hallucinations grow more intense and frequent as the movie progresses. The dancer Nina gets jealous of and is encouraged to be more like is Lily, who loses herself in dance. Nina's so nervous and preoccupied with doing dance the right way that she doesn't stop to let go of her inhibitions, truly just improv and dance with her all, with her soul really in it. She needs to let go, basically. This fear of what would happen if she just stopped worrying about being perfect and just tried to have fun and be herself and see if she could still be successful that way. Key theme in BTS's song, Black Swan as well. There are also parallels where one character gets hit by a car, the hospital setting is similar, the cracked mirror poster for the movie, the scene with actual black swan wings growing out of Lily's back. Those wings actually are not just in BTS's black swan video, but also in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And that's definitely a scene where you don't know what's a hallucination. I'm assuming that one was, but there's a scene where she destroys a bunch of paintings, the presence of paintings as a symbol, also another parallel there, the bathtub scenes, the scars, and then of course the super thought-provoking finale. Nina does it. She performs the role she wanted perfectly. She thought she had stabbed Lily. It turns out she stabbed herself, is bleeding out on stage, and Thomas is like, what'd you do? And she's just beaming. She's like, I did it. I was perfect. And that's the end of the movie. So she did get perfection and died because of it, basically. That was the cost. That sense of you think you have it all, but then realize it's not what you really wanted, not the fulfillment that you needed in other areas of your life. Key theme in BTS's songs, especially with Shadow too, plus an ego with the line, my dancing was chasing ghosts. I could go on and on. But it's about losing yourself in the process of trying to lose yourself to inhibitions, to unleash your full potential and creativity, but then that willingness to succeed gets misconstrued, misguided, exploited, manipulated by others. There's just so much to read into that we did in that episode, so... Before moving on, I do want to touch on just some of the many other times K-pop has addressed themes in Black Swan. There's the getting hit by a car that also happens to Hyunwan in a Monster X video. There's a moment where Minghyuk seems to see a, a twin of his, or at least a mirrored image. Either way, can represent that good and evil in herself that she sees. Then there's the song Black Swan by Rainbow, where they say, I'm suffocating as I'm fixing my toe shoes. 
The shiny smile in the foggy mirror is not me. Who is it? Please hug me. Please accept me. Until the end, I'm putting on a strange mask and dancing a strange dance. Until the end, you push me. I can't escape the chasing glares. Somebody to save me. Is there anyone? I've waited for this moment. I'll be born again. Now don't let me go like Black Swan. My image is changed, trapped in my two flaming eyes, shining freely. Tell me everything's a bad dream. Now on top of the lake, where the moon is hidden, I'm dancing again. They really address there the ways in which there really is at the root a genuine passion for dance. That genuine love of performing is there. It's not like this main character never wanted to be a dancer. She does, but she just gets pushed and pulled in so many toxic directions by toxic actors, and then it gets blurred in her head how much of this dream that she's pursuing is her dream still. Another movie I talk about extensively in a BT Study Guides episode you should check out, Ladder Than Bombs. This art exhibit is going up after she dies. A retrospective of her life's work. Jonah is trying to help put this exhibit for his mom together while keeping it a secret why their mother really died because his younger brother Conrad doesn't know. And one key takeaway you could take from this movie is that despite wanting to shelter Conrad from a darker version of events and that making their lives better, it seems to make their lives more paranoia-filled, more nervous, and it prevents them from building a communication channel together, something to talk through and vent about together. So Conrad is concerning. He's trying to journal and open up to people in not socially ideal ways, He doesn't know how to vent his sorrow over his mom's passing. It's so concerning to the dad that he starts basically following Conrad to know what's going on. The whole lack of just talking to each other, being evasive, not feeling like they can't open up to each other, that's a big bottom line I see in the story. And some of the themes in the BT Study Guides episode I go over include the reminder of how life can change in an instant, Life can feel interrupted out of the blue, this sudden fear. There's also parallels in the themes addressed, the importance of friendship, camaraderie, flashbacks, seeking healthy coping strategies, coping with grief, the use of photographs, Polaroids to tell a story. Lots of overlap there. The Louder Than Bombs lyrics that stand out most to me are ones like, Your silent sorrow shakes me in my quiet sea. Waves rise louder than bombs, I break. The pouring pains, the expression you made. No matter what night swallows me, I won't give up. A fight for you will shine. You and I feel together. Trying to get a promise out of a loved one. Hey, I'm here for you. Please feel free to open up. Let's process this together. Switching gears to Snowpiercer. The connection to K-pop is admittedly a bit of a stretch. People just suspect Snowpiercer was alluded to in BTS's Spring Day video. Do with that what you will. But I do want an excuse to talk about this concept because it really makes you think. It's another great work from Bone Joon-ho. Snowpiercer is the sci-fi action movie from South Korea from 2013. It became a Netflix show in 2020 based on the French graphic novel about a climate apocalypse. Because it's basically about an apocalyptic setting where all of humanity, or at least that's what they're told, cannot survive anymore outside of this train. This huge lawn train. 
The compartments towards the front are where all the wealthier, elite people in society now live. In the tail of the train, all the poor people are crammed in. And to keep supplies sustainable, the order for who needs to die to cull the population, of course, goes to 74% of people in the tail. The people up front will be fine. It turns out later, the conductor, Wilford, basically manufactured this whole thing. It was all his idea. He runs the show. It ends up at the end, they see a polar bear in the distance. So they're not extinct yet. And they have this moment of, oh my gosh, what if we've been lied to? What if there is still life, sustainable life, outside of this train? There's another moment, too, where they see thawing ice and wonder what's really going on. But the kids certainly won't learn in school, because in the classroom, they see this teacher teaching all these kids pro-Wilford propaganda, basically. Wilford is like their king, or is supposed to be. We'll talk about Parasite in a different episode, but this is another example of Bon Joon-ho's work covering classism, Wealth divides between the haves and have-nots, prejudice, and just an apocalypse, a sense of, this is more specific to Snowpiercer, but climate change, the threat of some big, massive, apocalyptic event, and who will be the first to suffer from that event. The people who didn't cause it, the poorer people. Some fun facts, it actually took four years to develop and then three years to produce. So Snowpiercer was the result of at least seven years of work. It also required filming with this massive gimbal in the construction of 26 separate railroad cars, intentionally designed to look out of place with each other. It's not like one clean train design. Each compartment is like its own little world, and it's interesting to think about how society is like that. This creation of little secluded parts of the world that want nothing to do with the others despite you're all literally traveling in the same direction. Speaking of apocalypses, let's talk about The Fifth Element, one of the many movies AOA nods to in their video for Get Out. The Fifth Element is this French sci-fi and action film from 1997, although it is set in 1914. It's about this taxi driver and passenger who are now tasked with Earth's survival. They have to find these four stones that will work their magic and save the planet. But in the process, they have to fend off this group of aliens, the Mangalores, who are working against the Mandoshwans, another group of aliens, who is trying to take down evil and use a weapon that has these four stones in it, as well as a fifth element to complete the picture. These agents use biotech and the severed hand from a spacecraft wreck to try to trace the story of the sarcophagus that will lead them to this fifth element. And this data leads them to Lilu, a humanoid. They realize she herself is the fifth element. In an exceptionally bonkers turn of events, the Mandoshwans claim the stones are actually currently residing with the alien opera singer, Plavalaguna. So the alibi they concoct is that Dallas, this person sent from Earth's military, won a radio contest, winning a vacation to the planet this Plavalaguna character is holding a concert on. And as Dallas prepares for the trip to this other planet, the Mangalores stow away in the ship. The Mangalores end up attacking Plavalaguna mid-concert, and she dies. But Dallas swipes up the stones out of her body and then kills the leader of the Mangalores. Without a leader to direct them, the Mangalores are like, well, shirt. 
and they surrender. But now this guy Zorg shows up, who I can't help but think of Zerg from Toy Story when I say that, but totally separate person. Zorg shows up, shoots Lilu, and sets up this time bomb as he runs away with the case. He deactivates it, though, once he realizes that is not the case, pun intended. But because of this plot in having the plane in the first place to steal the stones, the Mangalore turn on him and kill him. Dallas, Lilu, remaining survivors leave in Zorg's spaceship. In the most Hollywood twist, Dallas saying he loves Lilu and kissing her is what suddenly makes her change her mind and decide to go through cooperating. She overpowers the evil, her and Dallas embrace, they're not together, and the movie ends. Naturally, this is a love or hate movie. Critics are very split, not much in between, loving and hating it. Some of the deeper things you could read into are the themes of corruption, people being tasked with saving the world who may not know what they're doing or not get much institutional backing, reliance on technology for solutions to an extreme extent. It's also viewed as praiseworthy by some because of its futurist architecture inspiration, the way the miniature models were built to help craft the CGI, they really paid attention to aesthetic ways of furthering the plot. And it makes sense that a music video would draw from it, because music was a key part of the story. Music is actually playing the vast majority of the time. Music keeps the story going. Like it does in AOA's Get Out, which is really about telling an ex, you said you were busy, I don't believe you, I don't buy it, but you won't find a better woman than me. Get out. Now if you kneel and beg, I'm still not taking you back. Yeah, not super related, but interesting connection nonetheless. And how Get Out does reference Leon the Professional, and the man behind that is also the man behind the fifth element. So maybe the video is more just of a tribute to him than either specific project. Some more dystopia, Interstellar, is a sci-fi film from 2014 about a group of astronauts in 2067, and they're trying to find some place humans can relocate to, since Earth just isn't going to work anymore. After this big dust storm, Murph, the daughter of the main character Cooper, her bedroom gets covered in these weird patterns. Cooper, this engineer and former NASA employee, is able to make sense of the patterns and figure out a direction, coordinates, they give him, which lead him to a NASA facility, but a secret one he never knew about before, led by this guy, Professor John Brand. At this secret location, Cooper finds out about how a wormhole nearly 50 years ago was set up near Saturn. This wormhole opened a portal to a new galaxy with 12 potential new residences for the world. So basically, they have 12 new opportunities, so 12 volunteers are set out to explore each planet. Some, of course, die in the process of finding out, nope, not habitable. Keep in mind, this wormhole, not to be confused with Gargantua, which is a black hole in the story. Anyway, there are two plans Professor Brand has. Plan A, develop a gravitational theory that will allow for settlements to move into space. Plan B, launch Endurance, a spacecraft full of frozen embryos to one of these habitable planets. Cooper takes the job of being a pilot for the spacecraft, and so he leaves Murph with this watch and says keep track of time, please, because they need to be aware of how the passage of time differs on different planets. And it seems that the closer to the black hole they are, the quicker time passes. 
in a weird moment of comeuppance for someone who thought he could get away with misinformation, Mann, this volunteer, confesses that he sent falsified data to the research team. So he knew the planet they were going to visit was uninhabitable. He just sent data that would show otherwise. And it turns out now, Mann is the one who dies. They end up in this tesseract, this giant 4D structure, and then Cooper basically serves as a ghost for Murph. He travels through time and is somehow able to watch her age as he peers through a bookshelf. That's the connection to GOT7's lullaby music video there, and Murph is the chosen one. He has to find a way to watch and relay info to. She's the one that will take their critical findings into account and help save humanity. Cooper manages to both manipulate the time on the watch that he gave Murph and manipulate gravity so it aligns with the dust patterns. Long story short, Murph finds out what kind of message he was trying to send her in Morse code and figures out what she's doing. Figures out she is the chosen one. And this ghost who has been relaying the info to her is her dad. The movie ends where Cooper gets kicked out of this tesseract structure and ends up somewhere where Murph is. But she's old now. Time passed a lot. But Murph is now old enough to solve the gravitational theory so they can execute plan A. Humanity can now leave Earth and find a new planet they can live on. However, Professor Brad, being weird and determined to go through with plan B, is left off still building a base to get started on plan B from. So whatever, Brand, you do you. Aside from the GOT7 video nod, must X have also cited this movie as inspiration. And one of the ways is because of that watch. That watch and controlling time are big recurring themes for Monster X as well, especially in the Dramarama era. Time symbolism is further enforced with the Endurance. That's one of three spacecraft in the movie, and this one is the one that resembles a clock with its 12 capsules and how they're exploring 12 new planets. They also seem to nod to the plot in their song Interstellar with lyrics like, Where I point to will be my future, I'll surpass all you who are bothering me. I'll take you all to a different planet. Every day is a climax, take your hands off the lever, because the rate of my growth is different. This will illustrate the theory of relativity. I'll stick up my ton and send you to a different planet while mocking you. A life where others decide how you feel? Good luck. Now it's getting closer, etc, etc. Going on this mission to a new world, metaphorically, but in the movie's case, literally. And an artist taking inspiration from this movie also makes sense because of that aesthetic and auditory aspect of care that went into the movie. So actually some annoying scenes with really loud background noises that kind of drown out dialogue, that was intentional. Some scenes intentionally had that extra noise to enhance the immersive quality of watching it. They also tried to use as few CGI effects as possible, so they physically built a lot of structures, including these giant 3D printed spacecraft models. This was actually brought to you by the same visual effects team behind Inception. Your fun random fact about this, it was actually named Flora's Letter. Flora's Letter was code though. It was never really going to be called that, but to keep things secret on set. That was what documents pertaining to the filming would say instead of Interstellar. I'm going to get to another source of Monster X inspiration in a minute, 
But real quick, another movie we've talked about on NCT Talk before, Alien. And I just really quick want to touch on that it's basically about this stress signal which awakens a spaceship crew when they're halfway home. The crew reaches this vessel with the aliens in it. An alien jumps out of this nest of eggs, clings to one of the people, causes the member to fall into a coma, then they travel to the moon, they capture a creature who had escaped, trying to use a tracking device. That is your ultimate, ultimately insanely condensed summary. But Alien is mentioned, I think, in the Dream Launch Wavy video. There's a poster of that as well as a space odyssey on their bedroom walls in the video because, well, outer space, of course, but also just kind of the rebirth of something new, the emergence of a new enemy and new gadgets to be aware of. Let's finish off today's talk with another Monster X reference. This is one of the many villains that each member portrayed, each one got a different movie villain, in the Love Killa music video. Although they don't want to reveal who plays which movie villain, my theory is that Kihyun is the villain in The Silence of the Lambs because he's the one in a cage locked up. The Silence of the Lambs is the psychological horror film from 1991. It's actually adapted from a 1988 book and is actually a sequel to Manhunter. This FBI agent, for some reason, despite being still in the trainee phase, Clarice, is tasked by this guy Jack with hunting down Buffalo Bill, a serial killer, who targets women and takes their skin to wear it. Sorry, yeah, it will get very disturbing for the rest of the episode. Trying to get to understand the psyche of Buffalo Bill, hopefully then learning his whereabouts, she tries to pick the brain of Hannibal Lecter, this serial killer, and cannibal in prison. And he's a psychiatrist somehow. Lots you could read into here. Lecter offers information to Clarice if she agrees to move him away from Dr. Chilton, who runs this mental institution. Sorry, I believe I called it a prison earlier. He's kind of locked up, but it's a mental institution. And Dr. Chilton made a crude remark when Clarice showed up. So he's basically trying to annoy this guy who made a bad remark about her. The daughter of a state senator is kidnapped by Buffalo Bill, and it's naturally huge news. Clarice senses the urgency of catching this guy, and she lies and says, okay, that's a fair trade. Now give me that info. But now, he says, but you should also tell me your secrets. She starts to tell him about how her dad was killed when she was just 10 years old. Now this warden, Chilton, he records this, then offers Lecter a different deal. Lecter ends up personally delivering false info to this senator to lead her away from the real culprit of her daughter's kidnapping. He claims the captor is Lewis Friend, which, if you re-scramble the letters, is iron sulfide, aka fool's gold. Clarice cracks that code, finds out there's no such thing as this Lewis friend, and tells Lecter, hey, I'm on to you. He says, well, I'll give you more info, but I want more dirt from you too. And this is where the movie title comes from. Her next confession to him is that she's still traumatized from a time when she was younger on a farm. She heard the sound of lambs being slaughtered. So the sound of lambs is what pains her to this day. Lecter ends up escaping later that day after killing guards. Long story short, Clarice does end up finding this senator's daughter stuck in a well. The movie ends with this FBI graduation party. 
Clarice gets this call from Lecter, who says he's now at the airport and is about to go have an old friend for dinner. Read into that what you will. Remember, he's a cannibal, so... Some interesting facts about this movie. Michelle Pfeiffer was actually set to star, but then turned it down, so Meg Ryan was approached. She turned it down. Laura Dern was approached. She turned it down. Jodie Foster, their fourth choice, accepted. The reason to cinema buffs and film critics why this movie is considered a classic is because it seemed to have kind of revolutionized the way the killer in movies is created. Just transformed the image of a killer in the movie from an overtly creepy monster to one who's more secretly a monster. Beneath a veneer of normality, I guess. Masking the heinousness. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you all next time for more movie talk. Bye, everyone.